This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Everyone has experienced a headache, and to most of us, they're just a minor inconvenience. Unfortunately for some, headaches represent a major health problem. The pain can be intense and can result in major lifestyle changes, including sudden change in plans, loss of productivity, and even strained relationships. As primary care providers, patients with chronic recurrent headaches can represent some of the most challenging patients we see. Fortunately, only rarely do headaches represent a serious threat to one's life, but one still needs to be alert to potential clues indicating the possibility of the headaches representing a serious medical condition. And there's also been an explosion of new treatments for migraines. So for all of these reasons, we're going to devote a series of podcasts to the topic of headache. And we're also going to honor one of Mayo Clinic's most prestigious physicians in the field of headache. Dr. Jerry Swanson has been a neurologist at Mayo for 39 years and has been a specialist in the evaluation and management of patients with headaches. He's helped countless patients in the management of their headaches, including some very challenging cases. Dr. Swanson recently retired from the clinical practice, and we decided to devote this series of podcasts on headaches to him as a tribute to his many years of work. So Jerry, congratulations on on an incredibly successful career. And uh, I know I speak for many of my colleagues as I thank you for the many times you've helped us provide care for some of these patients. Well, thank you very much, Daryl, for the honor. I'm actually most appreciative that you are devoting a series to headache, which I think is for many physicians at least been underappreciated and undertreated. And as you mentioned, we do have some new, very excellent treatments, which are helping more and more individuals for disabling headache, mainly migraine. So it's uh, again, an honor to be here. Well, let's start. I want to find out a little bit about you and your career. So when and why did you choose to specialize in the evaluation and management of headaches. I think most primary care providers find it a very challenging field. So tell us about your career. So uh, I uh, started back in the late 1980s to become interested in headache. And when we look at what we now understand, particularly about migraine and the treatment options that we have, I suppose you could call those sort of the dark ages. But I was very fortunate in our department. I had a, a superb mentor, Dr. Keith Campbell, who really was carrying most of the headache burden at that time in our department and was the go-to person in the institution. And at that time, he was asked to put together a symposium for a group of orofacial pain specialists. These are mainly dentists and uh, didn't want to run the symposium entirely himself and asked me to contribute a couple of talks. And so I did that. And then they wanted to publish the proceedings of this. So it meant a couple of papers. And then as I interacted more with Keith Campbell, it became clear that this was an underserved area, particularly given the frequency that we see headache in neurology, as well as obviously in general practice. And so uh, as oftentimes occurs, it was a little bit of happenstance initially, but my interest was whetted and I've stuck with it. So as you look back, was it a good choice? Any regrets? 
No, not really any regrets at all. No, I think it, it has worked out very well. There really was no headache specialist in, in Arizona or in Florida. In fact, uh, at that time that I, uh, although the, the clinics were being launched about that time, subsequently, we have recruited several headache specialists in Rochester, but also at those sites who, again, are providing expert care for patients who have difficult to manage problems. And uh, these are great folks who do fine, fine work with patients and are contributing as well to the field. Of course, uh, in medicine, many of us go into it to try to help patients. So I think the most gratifying thing is when uh, I see someone and you know we, we treat them or have treated them and we see them back and their headaches are substantially improved, their lives are better. That's really the reason for working in this field. And fortunately, most patients can be significantly helped, although sometimes it takes a bit of trying different approaches before we get there. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I know from experience, patients are incredibly grateful when you've even helped them reduce the frequency or severity of their headaches. Well, you've seen thousands of patients with a variety of types of headaches. As you look at headache as a general clinical syndrome, what impact have you seen uh, in terms of their patient's lifestyle, their economic impact? Tell us a little bit about that. What we've learned from the World Health Organization, which carefully studied this some a few years ago, Migraine is the second leading cause of years lived with disability worldwide and accounts for most headache-related disability. On an individual basis, of course, as you already mentioned, headaches can lead to loss of time at work, income, and of course, enjoyment of personal activities, which basically all degrades their quality of life. And since women are twice as likely to have migraine headaches than men, they're particularly severely impacted, particularly in their productive and reproductive years. Now, why have I focused on migraine? Well, it turns out that that is the most likely diagnosis that a patient will have who's seeing someone in primary care. Probably about 90% of individuals who walk through the door and really have chronic recurrent headaches will ultimately be diagnosed with migraine. Now, that's not to say there aren't a multitude of other headaches, but this is really where the money lies, so to speak. And so, uh, hence, I focused on that. Tension type headaches are the most common headache disorder in the population, but in fact make up a very, very small percentage of folks who will come in. Once they become chronic, which is daily or need daily, then certainly they may seek help. And certainly they may coexist with migraine. And when the migraine is high frequency, say eight days per month or greater for the last three months, and they have some sort of headache 15 or more days per month, that's chronic migraine. And that's a particularly disabled group of folks who bear the brunt, if you will, of the disability related to headache disorders. So, uh, you know, in a nutshell, although migraine in particular and other severe headache disorders like cluster headache aren't typically going to kill anybody, they certainly make life miserable. Yeah. Well, Jerry, I started my career the same time that you did. And I recall shortly after I went on staff, I was having a lunch with one of, my, one of my senior colleagues, and I noticed on my schedule was a patient who I'd seen multiple times for chronic recurrent headaches. And I remember telling him that uh, I really don't look forward to that because I just can't get rid of them for her. She just keeps coming back, and I try one thing after another, and it's not working. And my colleague said, you know, that's not really what they want. They want to know that it's nothing serious, and if you can help them at all, they're very grateful. So is that true? Is that what patients want? They they want to know this is a benign cause and they want to be helped? 
So it sort of depends upon the stage of when patients come in, I think. If it's a brand new headache disorder, particularly if it's severe headaches, then all sorts of concerns regarding cause are the focus. You know, is this a brain tumor? Am I going to have a stroke? Is this intracranial hemorrhage? Do I have meningitis perhaps, particularly if it's been a prolonged headache and if there's any fever associated with it? But I think once a headache is established, and quite frankly, most of the people that would find their way into a headache medicine specialty practice, such as we have at the clinic, usually have had headache for a time, although some local patients are referred early on with a new headache problem. But I think those folks really are seeking relief. They know they have migraine or this subtype of migraine known as chronic migraine, and they really want less pain, less disability, and so forth. But again, I think it depends on the individual circumstance of the patient. Again, probably with respect to the time frame when they present. Okay. Well, as you look at the general topic of headache, how do you categorize the various types? How do you separate them out? Sure. Well, from a very sort of 50,000 foot view, we can divide headaches into primary headache disorders, which are disorders like migraine, tension type headache, cluster headache, and several other usually often uncommon type of headaches, meaning that there's a pathophysiologic process occurring, but that when one seeks an underlying cause, you really don't find one. And then of course, if there are primary headaches, there must be secondary headaches. So secondary headaches are when you can identify a cause for the headache, such as obviously on the radar screen would be brain tumor, subarachnoid hemorrhage, meningitis, subdural hematoma, and we can go down the list, but they can also sometimes be trivial. In fact, the way that the International Headache Society has classified headaches, there can be a cold substance ingested type headache, so so-called ice cream headache or brain freeze. That's a secondary headache, right? But it's not very concerning, you know, at least. But uh, when we say secondary headaches, oftentimes we're meaning, gee, some sort of more serious problem. Is there a genetic component to headaches? I think the genetic component is best seen in migraine again. That is sort of the paradigm because it's so common. It appears that if an individual has a relative, particularly a first degree relative with a migraine, they're at least three times more likely to develop migraine headache. There is a rare form of migraine called familial hemiplegic migraine in which the specific gene has been identified. And it turns out it's even more complex than that since there are at least three separate genes and possibly a fourth that can produce that general picture, although there are nuances of differences between each of these genetic disorders. Although there has been much looking for specific genes that cause migraine without aura, migraine with aura, sort of the typical kind of thing that most people who have migraine are experiencing, the bucket has come up fairly empty. There are some gene loci that seem to be associated in certain populations. And I think the issue is, is that this is a multifactorial disorder. So partly it's genetic, partly it is environment. And just for a simple environmental cause, gee, somebody has never had headache. They have a relatively mild head injury and thereafter develop recurrent migraine headaches. I'm certain most people in primary care have seen that scenario, but definitely there's genetics plays a role, but the it's very complicated. We just don't have the answer there yet for the vast majority of folks and certainly no genetic specific treatment for them. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get real specific here and practical. 
Headaches represent a major portion of our primary care providers practice. We see both tension, we see migraine. So when we're seeing a new patient with headaches, what are some questions we should ask them and help us decide where to go with the evaluation and then eventually management? The first uh, question is, gee, just tell me about your headache. And usually if you don't interrupt the patient, in my experience, within two or three minutes, they will lay out what's on their mind. And I think you may not get all the answers, but I think it helps develop rapport with, with the patient because, as you know, fairly or unfairly, care providers, physicians in particular, are accused of not listening. And so I think that's always important. And particularly for patients, if they've been around the block a few times, as that one patient you mentioned that you were seeing many years ago, I think oftentimes uh, they feel that they've been neglected in terms of laying out their story. But once they've done that, hopefully they've either told you or you can sort out, gee, you know, what is a typical headache? If they're coming in for the very first time with a headache, obviously you want to know the particular circumstances about that, its onset, was there head trauma or some other precipitating event. You want to know how it began. If it was a sudden onset, so-called thunderclap headache, that is a big red flag. And uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage, among several other things, needs to be considered as a possible cause. And we can talk more in detail about so-called red flags of, of headache as we go along here. Where's the pain located? How severe is it? How does it impact your life? How long does it last? What are the associated symptoms? Obviously, if nausea and or vomiting, as well as if there's light and sound sensitivity, quickly you're going to be focusing on a diagnosis of migraine, particularly, again, if this is a recurrent disorder. And then you want to know how it impacts the person's life. You know, are they missing work? Are they missing other activities? And, you know, what other symptoms might they have, such as aura, you know, visual disturbance, somatic sensory disturbance, etc. And if so, how long does that last? And uh, do all their headaches occur in that circumstance? If the person has had headaches uh, for a time, you want to know certainly what have they used previously to treat their headaches and how effective has it been? What are they doing now? And that divides principally into two types of medications. One is acute medication, that is what does the patient take when they are developing a headache or have a headache to try to limit its impact on their life, and then preventative medications to try to reduce the frequency of headaches. And again, those are used in a variety of kinds of headache disorders. But again, as you point out, migraine and tension type headache have agents that can be effective, which no doubt will be covered uh, as this series of podcasts goes along in great detail. And I think those are the major things. Obviously, if it's a new headache problem, you know, is there a history of cancer? Have they had fever, unexplained weight loss? I mean, these are things that would sort of tip your hand towards considering something more serious. Another issue is how have they managed it with non-medication things? And there are a variety of things out there currently that, that folks may have tried as well. And certainly nutraceuticals are out there and people try magnesium or vitamin B2, et cetera. So a variety of things that you need to cover with the patient. And again, how long it takes to get a history will in part be dependent on how long the history of headaches is. Obviously, if this is the first headache the person has had, uh, there'll be less to tell. So Jerry, I know serious headaches are not very common, but what are some red flags that we should be alert for in taking a history and how common are serious headaches? 
Well, uh, to answer the second question first, fortunately, not common at all, but obviously one doesn't want to miss one in a thousand of something that's serious and life-threatening, uh, such as subarachnoid hemorrhage. There have been a variety of lists, as you might imagine, created to try to remember what's of concern, and they have mnemonics. And uh, our colleague, Dr. David Dodick in Phoenix, created what he called SNOOP, S-N-O-O-P. And over the years, this has gotten enlarged. And a couple of years ago, another group published in the journal Neurology, Red and Orange Flags for Headache, and they came up with SNOOP 10. The trouble with mnemonics for me is, can you remember all of what the letters stand for? But nevertheless, SNOOP 10 is, I think, pretty comprehensive. So I'll briefly share that with you. Systemic symptoms like fever, weight loss uh, would be red flags. Now, again, fever can be associated with a viral illness and headache, not serious, very commonly seen in practice. Obviously, you probably need other features to go along with that, like stiff neck if you're concerned about meningitis or encephalitis. If there's a history of cancer, systemic cancer, since obviously many of these can metastasize to brain. If on exam, even a, a brief screening exam, there's a neurologic deficit or dysfunction, which would include a change in consciousness, that would be of concern unless you have some you know, explanation for it. Somebody has a reduced gastrocnemius soleus uh, reflex and they had an old S1 nerve root lesion some years before, obviously that wouldn't get much concern at all. It wouldn't be related to the headache. As I talked before, if the onset is sudden and quickly reaches maximum over a period of a second or two or even 60 seconds, that subarachnoid hemorrhage until proven otherwise. And obviously the person needs to be imaged with a CT scan without contrast immediately and may need a lumbar puncture and may need more advanced imaging with MRI, MRA, depending upon the uh, situation. Most primary headaches begin uh, in younger folks, certainly true of migraine and even tension type headaches, the common ones. People draw the line differently in the SNOOP 10. They say somebody 50 or older. And of course, if it's about age 50, we begin to think about giant cell arteritis, which can threaten vision and a variety of other kinds of functions. It can cause stroke, et cetera, if it, if it goes unchecked. But again, cancer and other things occur more commonly as we age. A major pattern change or recent onset of headache, and that's sort of a, particularly the recent onset is a little soft in that you know, somebody comes in and they've had two attacks that sound like migraine and they, you know, lasted uh, several hours, that probably wouldn't be of concern. But if it's a more progressive kind of situation or it's getting worse, if you will, then that would be it. So positional headache, so headache that occurs after standing or with lying down, the, the standing is suggestive of possible spontaneous cerebrospinal fluid leak. It's very similar to the orthostatic headache that we see after lumbar puncture that we do diagnostically sometimes in patients or therapeutically less commonly, or particularly lying down and in the morning it's worse, which might suggest increased intracranial pressure. A headache that's caused by sneezing, coughing, or particularly, it's, so that's sudden onset. That's one kind of headache and may last a minute or two. Those folks oftentimes may have a posterior faucet type of process causing this, Chiari malformation, space-occupying lesion, things like that. And then exercise-induced headaches, although migraine can certainly be produced by exercise. Again, if it were, say, sometimes it gets hard to know. Somebody's doing heavy lifting for their exercise and the headache comes on suddenly. I think if it builds up gradually and sounds like migraine, that's probably of less 
concern that if there's a serious underlying cause. Uh, obviously on exam, if there's papilledema, although I realize that many primary care folks don't feel uh, maybe expert at looking at fundi, certainly that would be a sign if, if they think that's the case. And if there's a concern, you can always have an ophthalmologist take a look. Sort of progressive headache and atypical presentations. Again, a variety of tumor and non-tumor causes. If a headache begins new in pregnancy or shortly after birth, then we worry about things like venous sinus thromboses and other uh, serious things, or, or even you know, this is a manifestation of elevated blood pressure and so forth. Painful eye with autonomic features that could turn out to be something like cluster headache or one of the other trigeminal autonomic cephalages, but there is at least an anecdotal literature suggesting that uh, lesions in or around the pituitary and in the posterior fossa can present that way. So these folks are probably going to need an MRI. Post-traumatic onset of headache, obviously for clear reasons of intracranial hemorrhage would be the major thing. If someone has an immune deficiency, such as HIV or some other acquired thing, again, concern about opportunistic infection would be there. And then painkiller overuse or new drug onset of the headache, obviously that raises the question. You can get so-called medication overuse headache, what used to be called in the common vernacular uh, rebound headache, uh, although that's not the term used anymore. Again, medication overuse headache is correct, for, particularly for people who have chronic headache problems. But even the triptans, which are very useful drugs, if overused, oftentimes for just a few weeks can lead to an ongoing recurrent headache. Again, if it's a brand new medication and certain medications are well known to cause headache, then obviously uh, that may be the culprit. But th that in a nutshell is, is sort of the Snoop 10 list and uh, it's worth at least thinking about, but I realize it's fairly extensive. Sure. Well, we still have to be aware of those, uh, of those symptoms. I suspect the majority of your patients are referred often from primary care providers. So what are some common mistakes you've seen us make in when we attempt to manage patients with chronic headaches? Sure. Well, I mean, obviously at the first go around would be, you know, is the diagnosis correct? And occasionally the diagnosis is not. And oftentimes it's somebody who has migraine, but they, it's called tension type headache. I think that's one. Another is what I would consider to be sort of under treatment of the headache or continuing treatment that isn't effective too long. And that can fall into either acute treatments or preventative treatments. I think the other thing that's important, and you sort of alluded to this, is that we have to have expectations set properly. So if the physician doesn't tell the patient, gee, we're going to try to control the headaches, we probably can't cure your migraine, or we don't think we can cure your migraine. They may, of their own volition, eventually get better. I think that's helpful, you know, sort of setting the stage for proper expectations. Again, if using a drug, be sure, certain you're using the optimal dose size, specifically thinking about sumatriptan. Historically, it's not rare to see somebody who's been given a dose of 50 milligrams. They're tolerating it fine, but it's not doing much. Well, 100 milligrams of that drug has been shown to be most effective. And that's true of some of the other triptans as well. Now, obviously, if you have someone who is particularly medication sensitive, then you're likely going to want to start with a lower dose to avoid side effects and the whole thing blows up on that basis. I think thinking about preventative drug when the patient's having five, six days of headache a month is important. And then uh, it's an issue of selecting a drug which would be compatible with their other medical problems, other medications they're on. You know, you probably wouldn't want to start a beta blocker 
with somebody who's got uh, borderline low blood pressure or already has bradycardia to a significant degree or is on other bradycardic type medicines probably would be a poor, or uh, if it's uh, non-selective that if they have asthma. So you have to consider those things. Now, granted, I don't think primary care doctors make those mistakes very often, but I think starting in this case at a very low dose, titrating over a period of weeks to an initial target, then following up with the patient to find out if it's worked or not. Unfortunately, it's not self-limited. Migraine isn't uh, oftentimes, and you just have to continue to titrate the drug up, assuming that the patient's tolerating it to give it a fair trial. But then once you have determined that the drug is ineffective, don't have them stay on it thereafter, but move on. So a few month trial usually is sufficient for most uh, patients to determine whether it's going to be effective or not. And then I guess always be open to considering a new diagnosis, particularly if the situation changes and the patient has told you that. So when should a primary care provider consider referring a patient to a headache specialist? Well, first, I think if the diagnosis is in doubt, and especially if you're worried about a secondary headache or even a relatively uncommon primary headache disorder, if you don't have experience with it, a cluster headache, although there's some overlap a bit in the treatment between it and migraine, usually requires other approaches, if you will. I think if the patient is, you know, has a chronic headache problem and they're significantly disabled and you've sort of gotten to the end of your rope in terms of knowing what to do next, that would be a good reason. Obviously, if a patient themselves wants to do that, that's probably always a good idea because otherwise they're going to be dissatisfied, I think, going forward. Those would be at least some of the, the major reasons that I would look for help. Although, as you pointed out in your introduction, many people with migraine have episodic headaches. The drugs that are used to treat them are well known, particularly the triptan group, which still overall is the most effective, even though we've got a few more drugs and treatments in our armamentarium. I think primary care providers are in a good position to treat uh, the majority of folks. Yeah, you mentioned the number of new products out there. We're going to devote a whole podcast on just the new treatments for uh, migraine headaches. I, I, I wish we had some of those early in my practice because we had very limited armamentarium back then. Right. And as you know, one of the major drawbacks with new drugs, patented drugs is cost, which is an issue. And certainly the pharmaceutical companies are <laughs> making their R&D money back and more, shall we say. But then because they are expensive, third-party payers uh, usually have hoops that have to be jumped through. And mm -hmm. I think that's the bane of physicians who prescribe any medicines is pre-authorization. Sure. Well, Jerry, you've given us a lot of information. Can you kind of summarize our discussion, maybe two or three key points of importance regarding headaches? Well, I think first, you know, take patients who have headache seriously, take their headache seriously. Even if you establish early on that this is migraine and benign, uh, I think they deserve our very best efforts as physicians to help them. And you want to communicate that because I think at least historically, and maybe this is more in your generation and my generation, Daryl, but I think oftentimes patients didn't get that message. And so to have the maximum opportunity of helping them, I think empathy and concern and doing our best is really quite important, just as it would be with any disorder. Look for a reason when you see somebody who's had recurrent headaches, why it isn't migraine, because most likely it is going to be migraine and you might as well get to the diagnosis and then move on to treatment. Educate the patient both about the disorder a bit 
as well as about the medications uh, you're going to use, side effects, expectations that it's helpful. And then I think follow up with the patient. I don't think one and done is usually going to make it for many people, particularly if they have uh, chronic recurrent headaches, and it may require some changes in the therapeutic regimen to get the patient to the point where they're not uh, having the headaches impact their lives so much. Well, we've been discussing the evaluation and management of headaches with Dr. Jerry Swanson, an emeritus neurologist at the Mayo Clinic. Jerry, again, congratulations in your retirement, and thank you for all the patients you've helped, and for my colleagues, all of us who you've also helped. Thanks very much for the opportunity to visit with you. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.